everyone, and welcome to Story and Star Wars. I'm Alistair Stevens. It has been a long eight months since my last Star Wars lecture, the enthusiastic first look at The Force Awakens back in December of 2015, and despite my best intentions, well, it's been a busy year. So this time around, to warm up the podcast feed and to prepare myself for a more detailed and rigorous analysis of The Force Awakens, as well, hopefully, as some imminent thoughts on the Rogue One pre-release materials, and perhaps even an exploration of the expanded universe, I wanted to address some of the outstanding questions and correspondence I've received about the story in Star Wars series itself, about The Force Awakens, and about a few other things besides. And I wanted to begin, of course, with the settled dust of the critical response to Star Wars Episode Seven. In the days and weeks after its release, and again, to a lesser extent, after the DVD and Blu-ray release, there were innumerable arguments and counter-arguments about the film. It's a triumph, said some. It's a cash-in, said others. It's a bold new direction. It's the same old story. I received dozens and dozens of emails articulating every possible argument about The Force Awakens, and dozens more links to think pieces and reviews and reactions all across the internet. And after a while, more than the film itself, once my own responses and opinions had begun to accrete and to settle, I became fascinated with the conversation itself, with the critical discourse surrounding this movie, and with the consensus-counter-consensus rhythm of that discourse. The first response was positive. Then, as predicted, there was a sudden wave of negative analysis. People who enjoyed the movie wrote defensive pieces about its virtues and attacked its critics. People who didn't enjoy the movie dismissed the positive response as fanboyism and made broad proclamations about the inelegant and shady commercial intents which drove the movie in the first place. Then there was a third wave, a fourth wave, a counter to that negativity, and so on, and so on, and so on. The further you go down that road, though, the less the conversation has to do with the movie, and the more it has to do with the discourse surrounding the movie, with fan culture in general. I've observed several times over that you'll never go broke on the internet by being controversial. And it would be naive to pretend that there weren't innumerable articles, YouTube videos, podcasts, blog posts, created explicitly to provoke an iconoclastic controversy. To be clear, I'm not just talking about a negative response to a beloved film. I'm certainly not just talking about The Force Awakens. If the first wave of response to a new movie is less than positive, then the second wave will be characterized by positivity. Controversy is what drives this unending cycle. If you've been familiar with the DC Universe comic book movies over the last couple of years, then you're familiar with that response. And of course, we saw a flood of articles right before the release of The Force Awakens, in which writers sought to reappraise and rehabilitate the prequel trilogy. This cycle is a real and consistent part of the popular response to pop culture. But that doesn't mean that all of the articles that were critical of The Force Awakens were motivated by the desire for attention or ad revenue. More importantly, it doesn't invalidate the criticism itself. Yes, there is absolutely a cynical element in the discourse surrounding this film, around every film, every piece of pop culture, but that doesn't mean that all disagreement and discussion is invalid, or 
that there is one objective truth. The Force Awakens is not an unqualified complete success. It is also not an unqualified complete failure. The truth is never that simple. In C.S. Lewis's essay on criticism, the link to which is in the show notes, he complained about critics guessing at the motivations which lay behind an author's actions. If a critic describes a piece of work as laboured, to use Lewis's example, is the critic saying that the piece itself seemed laboured when he was reading it? Or is the critic guessing that the creative act behind the piece was laborious? The former of these two things is legitimate criticism. The latter is guesswork about a creative process into which the critic has no insight at all. To quote Lewis directly, quote, The trouble is that certain critical terms, inspired, perfunctory, painstaking, conventional, imply a supposed history of composition. The critical vice I am talking about consists in yielding to the temptation they hold out and then, instead of telling us what is good and bad in a book, inventing stories about the process which led to the goodness and badness. Parenthetically, I should say that I don't particularly rate C.S. Lewis as a novelist. I've never been much of a fan of Narnia, but his non-fiction writing, particularly his thoughts on critics and on criticism, are well worth your time. So, if you watch a movie that seems to be carelessly edited, shots are out of alignment, continuity is all over the place, basic visual grammar is being violated left and right, we can say, fairly and legitimately, the movie is poorly edited. If we then say the movie is poorly edited because the director doesn't understand editing and the studio just wanted to release it and they don't care about the fans, then we're no longer talking about the text itself, but instead about the film industry. Which is a thing that you can do if you want to, but watching a film doesn't give you any insight into the business of creating the film. Just as reading the accounts of the production of any given movie gives you no insight at all into what it's like to watch that movie. If you read a careful and painstaking diary about the shooting of The Force Awakens, you still wouldn't have any sense of what the experience of watching the movie is like. Lewis defines this contrast in properly formal language as the formal cause, what do you mean by calling it bad, he writes, wherein does its badness consist, as opposed to the efficient cause, how did it become bad. Breaking down the formal cause is real textual analysis. Explaining the efficient cause well, that's a different kind of journalism altogether, and it isn't ultimately about the text in front of us. So if we're tempted to talk about J.J. Abrams' motivations in making The Force Awakens, we're not talking about the film itself, but instead playing a guessing game about the creative process. J.J. Abrams wanted to reboot Star Wars. J.J. Abrams wanted to fix Star Wars. J.J. Abrams just wanted to remake the first movie. The Force Awakens was a cash grab by Disney. They made it to appeal to girls. They made it to appeal to children. They made it to appeal to nerds. That's not effective criticism of the film because it has nothing to do with the text itself. It may be informed and it may be insightful, though it almost certainly will be neither, but it's not relevant to a close study of the text itself. If you want to argue that The Force Awakens was made to appeal to existing Star Wars fans rather than a new audience, 
And if it is your contention that such a decision and a desire made the film worse than it would otherwise be, then it should be evident in the text. Indicate which scenes you're talking about. Show me which choices you're referring to. Explore the text. Don't guess about J.J. Abrams' intent or Lawrence Kasdan's intent or anyone else's. Demonstrate your case with reference to the text. And we can easily put this to the test by looking back at a more controversial period of Star Wars history, the special editions. Are they bad? Are they bad because of George Lucas's underlying intent, because of the motivations we popularly attribute to him, even the motivations that he has in interviews and behind-the-scenes footage claimed? Well, no. They're bad because many of the changes that were made demonstrate a poor understanding of the underlying text, because they lack restraint and awareness, because they are tonally, conceptually, or aesthetically inconsistent. Those are the formal causes. That is not to say, incidentally, that the extraction of narrative intent from the text of the piece is invalid. There is a world of difference between saying the story is clearly trying to do X and the author is clearly trying to do X. The former arises from textual analysis. The latter does not. Even the author's own words, as given in interviews and personal accounts, aren't a reliable barometer for his or her underlying intent. Trust the text. Read the text. Here's the trick, though. Because this cuts both ways. Is that 10 theories about Ray's parents article on BuzzFeed motivated by crash commercialism? Is that Reddit post about race and representation in the Star Wars universe motivated by real-life bigotry? Well, maybe. It doesn't matter why the article was written, though. What motivated the writer to make the choices he or she made, we can speculate all day about such things. And it doesn't matter to the content of the piece. Here, too, we must analyze the text. Show me the formal cause. Show me wherein its badness lies. We must not, in the name of the most diverse and engaging discourse possible, dismiss criticism, either positive or negative criticism, by imagining the motivations of the writer, the director, the producers, the actors, the critics themselves, or the fans. We must demonstrate, within and upon the text, whether it's worth reading or not, whether its conclusions are valid or not, whether it adds to the conversation or not. Which carries us, of course, to the single most frequent piece of criticism I've received with regard to The Force Awakens. It may not be a reboot in name, I'm told, but it's a reboot in substance, mimicking the plot and the structure and the characters of the original trilogy. It's a shameless money-making exercise. Hashtag bring back George Lucas, and so on. This is not, as I'm sure you can tell, an opinion with which I'm particularly sympathetic, and not just because I happen to enjoy The Force Awakens, not just because I think it is a good film. I don't think it's criticism that is supported by the text of the film itself, or at least by anything more than a superficial read, because on the one hand, there are numerous points of comparison, a number of obvious references that tie The Force Awakens back to A New Hope, to Empire, and to Jedi. There's a desert planet. There's a droid with secret information. There's a guy in a black mask. There's a cantina scene. There's, you know, basically a Death Star protected by a shield which needs to be removed. All those things, yes, are present. But to what effect? To what purpose? 
In which direction, to return to the metaphor I used eight months ago back in the original TFA lecture, in what direction are we facing? This is the heart of what makes The Force Awakens interesting to me. It doesn't just echo the earlier films. It relentlessly and inventively inverts and subverts those expectations and conventions in oh, any number of ways. We are left with a film that absolutely looks in its broadest strokes like the Star Wars we know and love. But in its intent, in its fine detail, in its execution, it's actually a very different kind of story. Yes, BB-8 is carrying secret information away from the First Order in much the same way as R2-D2 carried the plans for the Death Star away from the Empire. On the surface, that's a connection, that's a parallel, that's a piece of symmetry. But look deeper. BB-8 is sent out into the desert with no plan except survival, R2-D2 is sent into the desert toward Obi-Wan Kenobi in order to recruit him. Much more importantly, the information R2-D2 carries in A New Hope is vital to the resolution of the primary plot. BB-8's information resolves the secondary plot, the search for Luke Skywalker. These aren't incidental details, though I will admit this is one of the more trivial examples. To consider another, is Rey in The Force Awakens the same as Luke in A New Hope? Well, superficially, perhaps. She's a gifted pilot, a potential Jedi. She's stranded on a desert planet, which she leaves in the Millennium Falcon. But again, to really understand the story, we mustn't look at the thing itself, but also to its function in the story. Luke wants desperately to leave Tatooine, but is held there by an external force. Rey wants desperately to stay on Jakku, but is torn away. Luke wants, in a broader sense, to be a hero, to rescue the princess, to save the rebellion, and learns, along the way, harmony and humility. Rey is already humble. Her ambitions are simple. She has to learn her potential for greatness. Their paths are not the same. In many ways, their paths are opposite one another. The most striking example in the entire film, I would say, the First Order essentially recreating the Death Star, is a conscious and explicit beat in the text. Kylo Ren is trying to make good on the legacy of Vader, and General Hux is trying to emulate and restore the power of the Empire. The bigger, better, faster, more school of weapon design gives them something that echoes the spirit of the Death Star, yes, but misses the point entirely. The Death Star wasn't intended primarily as a means of destruction, though it was clearly a weapon of immense scale. Rather, it was created explicitly in the text of A New Hope as a deterrent. The Empire's primary purpose wasn't to destroy, but to dominate and to control. Their cold authoritarian hold on the galaxy has been broken, and what has arisen in its place is an enraged, savage remnant. Smaller, but perhaps more dangerous in its fury. Starkiller Base and the Death Star, and, to a similar extent, the First Order and the Empire, may look the same, but their purpose, their intent, could not be more different. Compare the destruction of Alderaan to the destruction of the Republic Capital Worlds. As Grand Moff Tarkin makes clear in that famous scene in A New Hope, when he tells Leia that the rebel base on Dantooine would be a poor example of the Death Star's powers, the ideal number of times the Death Star should be used is one. 
The Starkiller base, deliberately constructed to mimic the appearance of the Death Star, is a weapon that is immediately put to devastating use, and is then immediately put to subsequent use, though thankfully that, at least, is thwarted by the Rebellion. There are countless examples of this throughout The Force Awakens, and I'll talk about them in more depth when we return to that movie in the next lecture. I'd urge you, though, to go and look at the film, and to consider the purpose, the role, and the consequence of your favourite and least favourite elements in the movie. Ultimately, I reject the assertion that The Force Awakens is a simple remake, or that it merely echoes the movement of the original trilogy in a slight or superficial fashion. It certainly echoes many of those same symbols and metaphors and arcs and archetypes, oftentimes explicitly, oftentimes consciously. But almost without fail, those elements are put to very different use and serve very different purposes than in the original trilogy. If The Force Awakens is a remake of A New Hope, then every single fantasy novel of the 20th century is a remake of The Lord of the Rings. And while there are those people out there on the internet who will claim exactly that, they're not right either. The Force Awakens, as I said back in my original lecture, is a story about stories, about the legends and the myths that define us. It is a story populated by characters who grew up in the shadow of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader just as we did. It's a story that is aware of the original trilogy because those events mattered in the Star Wars universe just as they mattered and continue to matter to us. That actually gives me a strong segue away from The Force Awakens and onto listener questions, though stay tuned, I will have a more comprehensive breakdown of that movie very soon. So on, then, to some of the correspondence that I've received in the last eight months. Aaron writes, I was really interested in your thoughts about stories being true, even if they're obviously not, and it felt important, but I'm not sure that I understood it. Can you go into more detail? Thank you very much for the question, Aaron. Facts have a truth value. Individual facts are either true or false, and collections of facts are, in aggregate therefore, also true or false. That's technically not a spectrum of possibility, but rather a sharp division, because factual truth isn't a subjective thing. It either is or is not. My half-forgotten studies of propositional logic back in college remind me that fact A is true or false, fact B is true or false, and the combination of facts A and B is only true if both of the constituent facts are true. I'm also suddenly reminded that the alternative to propositional logic is, no kidding, first-order logic, which is chilling. So... I can tell you a thing that is true, or a thing that is false. It rained this morning, here in upstate New York. The cup of coffee on my desk went cold a long time ago. As it happens, both of those things are factually true, and thus the entire combined proposition is true. Stories, though, have what we might consider a secondary truth value. Whether the details are factually true or not, the effect of the story, its conclusion, its emotional content, may be true or false independently. It rained this morning here in upstate New York. The cup of coffee on my desk went cold a long time ago. 
you may infer several things from those details. You may infer that on a cold and wet spring morning, I was so caught up in the preparation of this lecture, or perhaps by watching the rain on the window, that I let my coffee go cold. You may have an emotional response to those simple facts. Perhaps it gives you a sense of comfort, or curiosity, or sadness, which I admit is usually my response to a cold cup of coffee. That emotional response, whatever it may be, exists independently of the facts that I related. Let's assume that you took the rain and the cold coffee to indicate a morning spent comfortably at work, and you were warmed, reassured by that thought. Well, what if I told you that actually it's a hot summer day and I don't drink coffee? If the facts I related were untrue, does that invalidate the emotional response that you experienced? It does not. To put it in somewhat inelegant terms, if I lie to you, if I tell you a story such that you have an emotional response, that emotional response remains true and valid regardless of the objective truth value of what I told you. Consider a piece of documentary filmmaking or of journalism, and I'll keep this politically non-specific, though I'm sure we can all think of numerous real-world examples in this benighted age, a reporter or a documentarian assembles a list of facts about an important issue, and those facts are individually true, but by no means all of the relevant facts are included. Those selected facts are then stitched into a narrative that, again, is objectively true, but woefully incomplete. The created narrative seeks to elicit a particular emotion from its audience. Fear, perhaps, of some looming threat, or anger at a particular group of people. Everything that appears on the screen before you may be technically true, but the context and the objective of the story feel to you false. Stories are about more than the component parts, more than the individual details. And then, consider Star Wars. And consider the other stories that you love, particularly those stories that have stayed with you for years, those stories which feel so personal that they may as well be a part of your identity. None of this, though it pains me to say it, is true. There aren't really X-Wings and lightsabers and Jedi Knights with 1970s haircuts, not even long ago, not even in a galaxy far, far away. But the responses that we have to those stories, emotional and intellectual and philosophical and spiritual, are all absolutely true regardless of that. That is what stories mean. That, in a very fundamental sense, is what stories are for. So when, to circle back around to the previous discussion, when I say that The Force Awakens is respectful of the truth of the original trilogy, and to a lesser extent of the prequel trilogy too, that is what I mean. It doesn't behave as a piece of art that exists in our world as though those earlier films were literally true. We don't sit down to watch The Force Awakens to find found footage Blair Witch Project conceits that try to convince us that those things really happened. But it does acknowledge and validate the way that we felt about those earlier stories, the effect that those stories had on us. It would be so easy to create a Star Wars film that mocked the earlier movies and mocked those who loved them, that sought to 
accrue authenticity and edgy social currency by deliberately invalidating those earlier responses. Those of us who love science fiction on the small screen, by the way, actually have a perfect example of that in the dark and gritty reboot of Battlestar Galactica, a text which worked on its own terms, for a while at least, but emphatically rejected the look and feel of the original Battlestar Galactica series. Now, it may well be argued that very few people have a profound emotional connection to the original Battlestar Galactica. And simply by making the new series a reboot, rather than a part of original continuity, the damage was minimized. But the point remains, I think, that The Force Awakens works as a positive and respectful part of the ongoing story, rather than as a counterpoint or a revision to it. And though that matters to Star Wars itself, it matters more to us, to those of us who saw those films with wide eyes back in childhood days and have been changed by our experience of those movies. Onward then, to another question. Joshua writes, I loved The Force Awakens, except for one thing. Why on earth is Finn so special? Why does he snap out of his training when there are thousands of stormtroopers working for the First Order? Can you explain his convenient crisis of conscience? And Joshua, you're right. At first glance, I think this is problematic. A story which rests upon a protagonist's sudden moment of inexplicable revelation is inevitably weaker than a story which properly motivates such a change, particularly when we're dealing with something as archetypal and as powerfully symbolic as imperial and, I guess technically post-imperial, stormtroopers. In the original trilogy, stormtroopers were interchangeable generic bad guys, deprived of their humanity so that our heroes could shoot them with moral impunity. In the prequel trilogy, that interchangeability and uniformity was codified by the cloning process. So Finn's one-in-a-billion moment of revelation marks him out from the very beginning of the film as innately exceptional, rather than exceptional by exercise of skill or effort. Luckily, there is a ready explanation for this, and it can be found in a line of incidental dialogue in the film itself. At 23 minutes and 40 seconds, Captain Phasma tells General Hux that FN-2187 reported to her division, was evaluated, and was sent for reconditioning. Hux says that there were no prior signs of nonconformity, and Phasma confirms that this was Finn's first offense. The existence of a reconditioning infrastructure within the First Order itself means that Finn is not the only stormtrooper to have doubts about his role. This is apparently something which the command staff have to deal with on an ongoing basis, so they already have procedures in place. The way that Phasma and Hux talk about prior signs suggests that there may even be stormtroopers who are bounced from active duty to reconditioning and re-education and back again multiple times throughout their career. There is certainly no suggestion that Finn's rebellion, even his open rebellion, is completely unknown to the First Order, or that any sign of disobedience is immediately punishable by death. The stormtroopers of the First Order, and therefore we might speculate the Empire, are clearly less monolithic than they may appear. This incidental detail may also explain Kylo Ren's look toward Finn on the surface of Jakku at the beginning of the film. Many viewers have been puzzled by Ren's inability to detect Finn's identity crisis. But it's possible that Finn is the fourth such crisis that Kylo Ren has encountered since breakfast. 
And the existence of reconditioning processes in the First Order is important, not just because it's a strong element of world building, not only because it patches over a narrative beat that caused some viewers to stumble, but because it refocuses Finn's exceptionalism. If he's the only stormtrooper who ever broke his conditioning, then he's passive. He's the lucky recipient of a one-in-a-billion miracle. If stormtroopers are exhibiting nonconformist behavior all over the place, but Finn is the only one who has escaped, on the other hand, then we must credit not the coincidence or contrivance of his epiphany on Jakku, but rather on his skill, his intelligence, his courage. He's not lucky, it turns out. He's awesome. I do still have my problems with Finn's later arc, particularly his motivations and actions during the assault on the Starkiller shield, but that's a conversation for another time. Really, Ken, which is a name that I enjoy a lot in this context, writes, There is something wrong with Kylo Ren, but I don't know what it is. He's obviously dangerous, and he has style as a villain, but I'm never afraid of him. Thoughts? Kylo Ren as a character remains the part of The Force Awakens which impresses me the least. Kylo Ren is an entitled narcissist. We don't know exactly why or how he fell to the dark side, but I feel pretty confident that it wasn't through the excess of virtue that we wish we had seen in Anakin Skywalker. The excess of virtue which is, I would still argue, an underlying part of Anakin's characterization, even though it isn't, perhaps, as developed and as evident as we might wish. Fear and virtue conspired to create Vader, a being of unyielding principle, a being of order and domination and control. Kylo Ren is not Vader. He isn't dedicated to the principle of the Empire, but to the practice, not the ideal of Vader, but just the idea. No, Kylo Ren is weak. He wants and he wishes and he rages, which to be clear, actually speaks to his power as an antagonist, because in this post-Vader world, the sharp-edged lack of restraint that we see from Ren is more powerful than the brooding monolithic authority of the Empire, and it speaks more directly to the modern world. Kylo Ren has the capacity, it seems to me, to be genuinely monstrous, to be far darker than Vader. Look at the way he fights, and Compare it to the athletic fluidity of Darth Maul or that unstoppable brute force kendo style of Darth Vader. Kylo Ren is savage and is brutal and is inelegant, but may be all the more dangerous for that. He's not, I think, a particularly skilled or experienced duelist, which may be why Finn manages to stand up to him so effectively at the end of the movie. I would disagree with the premise of Really Ken's question in one specific regard, then. I actually find Kylo Ren to be an enormously effective antagonist in the first act of the movie. Behind the mask, he is enigmatic and mercurial and unreadable. After he removes the mask, we're invited to interpret his words and his actions with much more precision, and that, to me, harms a character who is at his best when he is at his most excessive and intense and his least expressive. I love and am enormously moved by the death of Han Solo, but I love it despite Kylo Ren. More on that, perhaps, in the next lecture. Let's move on to our final question. Wookie Crumb on Twitter asked me for my take 
on the Darth Jar Jar theory and the story potential contained therein. Since it's been a while since the internet as a whole was discussing the Darth Jar Jar theory, I guess a quick recap is in order. The theory was written by Reddit user Lumpawaru, who postulates that all of Jar Jar Binks's comedic antics were actually indicative of a connection with the Force, and that Jar Jar was the antagonist who was supposed to anchor Senator Palpatine's rise to power through the prequel trilogy. It is, for what it's worth, a really well-written piece, and I love the enthusiasm with which Lumpawaru tackles the material, but ultimately, I am unconvinced. Like Mike Climo's Ring Theory, it is a well-written and genuinely insightful piece of analysis which, in my opinion, selectively credits to an underlying genius, that which may be better credited to other, less admirable qualities. More generally, though, I have to say I'm somewhat weary of the current fashion for integrating every possible detail of the Star Wars universe with every other possible detail. I have been known to read a unified Pixar theory in my time and to speculate along similar lines, but the exhaustive and exhausting speculation about Rey's parentage, or Snoke's identity, or Poe's, or Hux's, or Finn's come to that, has been a little too much. Literally the first piece of speculation which emerged from the Rogue One teaser trailers is that Jin Erso is secretly Rey's mother. That's not impossible, of course, but the endless desire of the Star Wars fan community to make everything fit together with as few connections as possible makes the universe feel smaller than it otherwise would. Though, in fairness, that is not the fault of the Star Wars fans themselves. This question strikes right to the heart of the matter, the ways in which Lucas used the prequels as a means of explaining and framing the original trilogy. In a sense, George Lucas himself trained Star Wars fans to look at the entire saga not, in fact, as an unfolding story, but rather as a collection of puzzle pieces. And if, arguably, he was building upon an innate desire that was evident in the endless connections and contrasts we saw in the expanded universe, he certainly codified it in his approach to the prequel trilogy. The prequels, it's clear from the first frames of The Phantom Menace, were never going to change our understanding of the original trilogy. There is no reflexivity in the storytelling. We explain, but we don't alter. Which is why I found this idea about Jar Jar so fascinating, not because I find it offensive or outrageous that the most reviled character in Star Wars history was supposed to be part of the greatest bait-and-switch in Star Wars history, but rather because the Darth Jar Jar theory is specifically and directly antithetical to the primary goals of The Phantom Menace and the prequel trilogy as a whole. Lucas took the original trilogy as a work of art and elaborately annotated it and framed it, which is by no means a worthless or meaningless undertaking, by the way. But throughout the prequel trilogy, he maintains a sense of the absolute sanctity of the original films. We can find, I think, a further example of that, conspicuous in its absence, when we look at Anakin in The Phantom Menace. I discussed the prequel trilogy's relationship with mysticism and with magic in earlier lectures, and there's no more pointed example of that than the matter of Anakin's parentage. One of the most likely reasons, it seems to me, that Anakin doesn't have a father is that it would have pulled the beginning of the story back by at least another entire generation. If there is a father in this story preoccupied with the relationships between fathers and sons, 
than the beginning of the story would occur a generation before the birth of Anakin, with Luke and Leia's grandfather, or great-grandfather, or great-great-grandfather, and so on. I genuinely believe that one of the reasons Anakin is fatherless is that Lucas wanted him to be the beginning of his line. And, in part, I suspect that's because it would have been impossible for Lucas to include a character as important as Anakin's father and not feel compelled to explain him. As a tangent, I would like to thank those listeners who are far more knowledgeable about matters theological than I, who corrected my common misuse of the term immaculate conception to refer to Shmi Skywalker's spontaneous pregnancy. The immaculate conception in Catholic dogma actually refers to God preserving Mary from the taint of original sin at her birth, not to her pregnancy or to the birth of Jesus, which should be referred to as the virgin birth. A genuine thank you to everyone who sent in that correction. As I said at the time, my theological education is sadly lacking, but I am always eager to learn more. So all of this is to say that I remain skeptical of the Darth Jar Jar theory, primarily because had it been fully realized, it would have represented the only part of the prequel trilogy to genuinely overturn our understanding of the original trilogy. Now, if Jar Jar Binks had been introduced in The Force Awakens, well, there's some potential. And that, I think, will do it for this extended rambling episode of Story and Star Wars. I'm not going to make a rash promise about exactly when I will return, but I can tell you that I intend to break down The Force Awakens in more detail. I intend to talk a little about the new expanded universe, and I intend to discuss Rogue One when it is released, if not before, as well, of course, as looking ahead to Episode 8. So this isn't the last that you will hear from me. In the immediate future, however, I have a couple of other projects that I'm working on in which you may be interested. The first is the upcoming second season of my Dear Mr. Potter seminar series, in which I break down and discuss the Harry Potter novels. We covered Philosopher's Stone last year. Next week, on August the 26th, we begin the Chamber of Secrets. Then, sometime around the end of October, I'm going to begin an even larger, even more daunting project. There and Back Again, a year-long seminar series in which I am going to discuss The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, as well as the Peter Jackson movie adaptations. That is going to be huge, and I can't wait to get started. Stay tuned to storywonk.com or sign up for the weekly Storywonk newsletter for updates. And I should mention, too, the other podcasts that I produce with my wife and my partner, Lonnie Diane Rich, Dusted, in which we discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, We Used to Be Friends, in which we discuss Veronica Mars, The Scott and the Sassanach, in which we discuss Outlander, and the newest addition to our podcast stable, We Can Do This All Day, in which we are analyzing the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, including the films, the TV shows, the Netflix original series. We just covered Thor... Next week, we're moving on to Captain America, the first Avenger, so now is the perfect time to join in with us. You can find those shows plus everything else that we do over at storywonk.com. You can also get in touch with me with your brand new questions by emailing podcast at storywonk.com, follow me on Twitter at paperbullets, or come stop by our Facebook page, facebook.com slash storywonk. And if you're looking for a more interactive experience, a more conversational experience, then the Storywonk Forum is for you. You can find that at forum.storywonk.com. And with that, I thank you for your patience and I bid you farewell. Until next time, I'm Alistair Stevens. Thanks for listening. 
and may the Force be with you.